hppodcraft.com. My memories are very confused. There is even much doubt as to where they begin, for at times I feel appalling vistas of years stretching behind me, while at other times it seems as if the present moment were an isolated point in a grey, formless infinity. I am not even certain how I am communicating this message. While I know I am speaking, I have a vague impression that some strange and perhaps terrible meditation will be needed to bear what I say to the points where I wish it to be heard. My identity, too, is bewilderingly cloudy. I seem to have suffered a great shock, perhaps from some utterly monstrous outgrowth of my cycles of unique, incredible experience. These cycles of experience, of course, all stem from that worm-riddled book. That was the first paragraph of H.P. Lovecraft's The Book, Mm -hmm. and you are listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. And who are you? Mm, Chris Lackey. (laughs) Hey, it seems like your identities become muddled. I know, I'm so confused. In the formless infinity. (laughs) Well, I know who I am. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. Oh, great. Glad to be here again once more doing a double feature. And that reader that we just had there is a, a friend of the show, Joel Nisbet. He kind of came in and, uh, you know, we needed somebody really quick, actually. He had written and said, hey, can I read for you? He said, yes. Yes. But we're pretty filled up with the rest of the shows. But then uh, we had to do some rearranging. So he came in and, and in a pinch and, and did an excellent job for us. So thanks yeah. so much, Joel. Thank you so much. So, Chad, we got a few announcements that uh, we, we should make. Yeah, we can jump into the story in a second. But yeah. by the way, the, that was the book. And we're also going to do uh, The Tree on the Hill. The tree on the hill. collaboration that we're going to do. Right. But w- what did you want to talk about? Now, if you recall, almost a year and a half back, has it been mm-hmm. a year and a half? Uh, we, it's been a long time. We made an announcement that we were looking for an artist for our comic book we were doing called Deadbeats. And we, we put up on the website some stuff. We found an artist, I.J. Colbert. Who many of you may know from our shows on the Mountains of Madness or from his excellent work drawing the Mountains of Madness, <laughs> <laughs> Madness uh, the graphic novel and uh, the upcoming Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Yep. He's had some stories in the first Lovecraft anthology and uh, he's done uh, adaptations of all the Sherlock Holmes novels. We'll put up links to his work. The company that publishes the Lovecraft anthologies, volume one and two, Self Made Hero, has decided to publish Denbeats. Yes. <laughs> So that will be coming out this fall. This autumn, if you're in the UK. 128 pages of deliciousness. Now, I think you'll be able to get it in the US as well. Yeah, supposedly uh, the distribution will be in the US as well as the UK. Yeah. So when it comes out here, it should come out there at the same time. Now, the story, it's its pretty firmly in the mythos. I mean, in that tradition of the mythos, right? Yeah. If you like what we talk about here, then you're going to like the book. Oh, yeah. It's set, it's set in the 20s. There's jazz music. There's gangsters. There's uh, monsters. There's zombies. There's yeah. cult type things. Yeah, I think it's kind Kind of like if Lovecraft had ghostwritten some like it hot. Probably. <laughs> Speaking of self-made hero, <laughs> Lovecraft Anthology Volume 2 will be out in a couple months, and we're trying to get ransoms for the two readings of The Temple and The Hound. Yeah, because those are the stories that we adapted for Lovecraft Anthology Volume 2. So we'll have The Hound read by Anthony Tedesco. The Temple Read by Andrew Lehman. Yes. And if you can give us any money in any amount, uh, we'll take it from you. And once we reach a ransom of $2,000, we'll release those readings. And we're hoping to get them out um, in March, around the time when the uh, when the book comes out. So exactly. hopefully we'll be able to do that. And thanks to everybody who's contributed thus far. We've really appreciated your support. Helps yeah. us keep the show going. And uh, keeps Chris and hookers and blow, which is really the most important part. Man, I need that stuff. <laughs> 
All right. Well, I think that's all the uh, announcements of business we needed to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Let's uh, let's get into the story. So that opening tells us that this guy got a book of some kind and it's freaked him out. Yeah. This story, wait, this is a really short story. Yeah, it's 1,200 words. It's not even a story. It's a fragment. It is a fragment. So going into it, I didn't assume it was going to go anywhere, but it, it really didn't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't go anywhere. Well, it, what this is actually, before we talk about it, is uh-huh. um, Lovecraft, according to Barlow, uh, Lovecraft was going to try and make fungi from Yugoth into prose. Now, that's now I don't we haven't talked about that much on the show, but that's a, a kind of a lengthy poem that Lovecraft mm-hmm. did. This is his beginning of it, but he kind of decided it wasn't working out, so he stopped. And that's why it ends the way it does. It just kind of abruptly just sort of stops. And I've got a letter here from uh, from H.P. Lovecraft. He wrote, I am at a sort of a standstill in writing, disgusted at much of my older work and uncertain as to avenues of improvement. In recent weeks, I've done a tremendous amount of experimenting in different styles and perspectives, but have destroyed most, emphasis added, of the results. That sounds like my last week. Oh. I mean, I, no kidding, really. I was trying to write all week, and I hated almost all of it. Aww. So relatable. But I will say that that even though that this is short and, and kind of goes nowhere, the writing's really cool. Yeah. I, mean, I like that opening, and I like where he goes on to the next paragraph and talks about um, finding the book, and he goes to this dimly lit place near the Black Oily River where the mists always swirl. I mean, it's a lot of great Lovecraft writing, and I, yeah. I get the impression it's some kind of um, secondhand store or something like that. It's a very old place with shelves full of rotting volumes reaching back endlessly through windowless inner rooms and alcoves. So there's like heaps of books on the floor and yeah. in crude bins. And that's where he finds this book. I've been into bookstores like that. Before. Sure. Used bookstores where there's just, just piles of books everywhere and there's, mm. nothing's priced. It's just kind of you take it up to the counter. You go, hey, I want to buy this. And the guy looks at it and goes, mm, a buck. Yeah. Sizes you up, tries to figure out how much money you got in your wallet and what you're willing to part with, you know. Those places are great, but... They do leave you with a bit of a film on you when you when you walk out, you know? There's yeah. like this kind of... Ugh. They smell <laughs> like old, dingy books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's where he finds this thing. I read a short story by that author, Nick Hornby. It was in this McSweeney's collection of uh, sort of weird fiction. They had a lot of different uh, authors. You did there. about a boy, Nick Hornby. Yeah, about a boy in high fidelity. He's a really good author. Right. I've read most of his books. The collection's called McSweeney's Mammoth Treasury of Thrilling Tales. It's got the cover of it's great because it's got a guy with a whip like fighting off a panther man. So it's really definitely that kind of crazy. Yeah. I, I would recommend it to people. We'll put up a link to, to it. And there's a lot of great authors in there like Michael Chabon and, and Michael Moorcock and Dave Eggers and uh, Michael Crichton. They all wrote weird fiction kind of stories. One of them, the Nick Hornby story, is called Otherwise Pandemonium. The only reason I'm even mentioning it, mentioning it other than to recommend the book is at the beginning of that story, he buys a VCR from a secondhand store and it turns out to be a VCR that if you fast forward enough will start showing you the future. So it's almost a Twilight Zone sort of premise. Oh, right. But I love the idea of the secondhand store as the sort of gateway to finding, you know, I think in Gremlins there was a situation, isn't that where he gets the Mogwai from some, yeah. you know, it's that kind of thing where if you go in, the person who runs the store might know something a little more than, than is obvious from the great formless heaps of books. That's I mean, that was the whole premise of the Friday the 13th television series. Oh, that's true. But <laughs> the Curiosity Shop, they had to yeah. go through. I liked that show. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, for, you know, being a, an 80s television show, but as 80s television show. And it, of course, had nothing to do with the Friday the 13th films. No, it didn't. I have, I will say, I've used the soundtrack from that show in this show a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You would never recognize it, but they have a. I like the soundtrack for it, so I've taken instruments out and slowed them down, or little bits, or bells, or things like that. Yeah, oh, wow. I actually have it's right in front of me. Friday the Thirteenth, the series compact disc. It's right in front of me right now as I'm wow. speaking. 
compact disc. What is that? Yeah, it's an old media form in which music was transferred to other people. Interesting. It's barbaric now. This guy kind of giggles when, well, it doesn't say giggles, does it? The (laughs) The guy who's running the store when he hands over the book, he doesn't even charge him for it. No, the guy just wants to get rid of it for some reason. Yeah, but it seems to amuse him in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he made a curious sign with his hand, and he had refused to take pay for it. He leered and tittered at him, so it's kind of like a giggle. Anyway, we're spending too much time on this. Look, <laughs> so he gets the book. He says, you know, not for centuries has any man known what kind of stuff's in here. This book is, no printing press touched this book. It was written by hand by some half-crazed monk yeah. in Latin. When he takes it home, he takes it up to his attic room. It's a study that he has up in the top of his house. It's the attic study. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's an attic room that he had devoted to strange searchings, which I just thought was great phrasing. So when he starts messing around with this book, then things get crazy, right? Well, he gets these insights into the cosmos, basically, and it mm-hmm. opens up. It, it, it feels very Randolph Carter, out of Aeon's kind of stuff to me. Yeah. He wakes up and some time has passed and his vision is different. He can sort of see into the past and into the future when he looks at objects and things. Right. And then he decides he's going to do another ritual or a ritual that's in the... Well, there's been... When he gets that strange vision, too, there was some writing there I liked. There's a strange high house in the mist kind of element to it because he's mm-hmm. up in his attic window and, and he's far up. You can see all the rooftops of the rest of the of the uh, town. And then he hears the scratching and fumbling at the window. Right. Which... So something's way up in the air trying to get in there. And then I he said... Um, for he who passes the gateways always wins a shadow, and never again can he be alone. And that one sentence is kind of worth the price of admission for the story. Something about that just really creeped me out. Yeah. You do this thing, something's going to cling on to you, and it will always be there. You'll never be, you'll always feel it, you know, with you. You know, that's a common theme in, in stories where, you know, once you experience something, you can never go back, you know, like right. the Lord of the Rings, you know, with... Frodo going off to Mordor and, and coming back, he tries to fit into Hobbiton and can't anymore. He's just... Right. And Frodo has to leave and he can't stay there just because he... And, and that's, you know, you go to war or you have some right. intense experience that you will get a shadow with you. And it's a shadow mm-hmm. that you will always have. And it's it's really, like you said, it's really beautiful the way that he states it here. Yeah, yeah. That is a great sentence. Well, as you were saying, the guy... This has happened to him where his perception has changed. He's been changed by this book, but... Then he decides, I'm going to go even deeper, and he carves out these five concentric circles of fire on it, the floor of his attic. Mm-hmm. And he stands in the innermost one, and he's chanting this litany, and, and the walls melt away. And this is that, yeah, this total Randolph Carter kind of thing where a black wind grabs him, and he's swept through all this crazy stuff. And then I think he, he's flying over like a, an old city, mm-hmm. city built in no fashion I'd ever known or read of or dreamed of. As he gets closer, he sees this big square building, and it scares him half to death. I mean, he just gets clutched by fear. Freaks out, and he wakes up in his attic room again. Yep. And that's when we have the, the horrifying concluding sentence. Thereafter, I was more cautious with my incantations, for I had no wish to be cut off from my body and from the earth in unknown abysses whence I could never return. That's it. <laughs> the The thrilling conclusion is that I'm just going to try and be a little more cautious with this book. <laughs> Yeah, but again, it's a fragment. This was never meant to see the light of day, even though it did get published. It got published in 38 and leaves. Did Barlow? Yeah, Barlow, well, submitted it and stuff. But there's some really beautiful writing in it, and it's a short piece. So just, I would say, give it a a check. Give it a a look-see. So then we're on to the tree on the hill. Southeast of Hampton, near the tortuous Salmon River Gorge, 
is a range of steep, rocky hills which have defied all efforts of sturdy homesteaders. The canyons are too deep and the slopes too precipitous to encourage anything save seasonal livestock grazing. The last time I visited Hampton, the region known as Hell's Acres was part of the Blue Mountain Forest Reserve. There are no roads linking this inaccessible locality with the outside world, and the hill folk will tell you that it is indeed a spot transplanted from his satanic majesty's front yard. There is a local superstition that the area is haunted, but by what or by whom, no one seems to know. Natives will not venture within its mysterious depths, for they believe the stories handed down to them by the Nez Perce Indians, who have shunned the region for untold generations, because, according to them, it is a playground of certain giant devils from the outside. These suggestive tales made me very curious. Uh, so once again, we've got one of these mysterious localities in the wilderness. Right. And the narrator here, I believe, is Lucas Scott, and he's very excited because he's just got a place on uh, Tree Hill Ravens on the basketball team. <laughs> I was about to really get into you. What are you talking about? That's not the narrator's name. <laughs> <laughs> what? I think you're talking about One Tree Hill. <laughs> oh. Yeah, you, you, that's the wrong source material you were looking at. Oh, How much of that did you watch mistakenly? Well, the first first three seasons. Oh no! Yeah. That seems yeah. Wow! Wow! I, I was, it didn't feel very Lovecraftian. One of our listeners thought that we said One Tree Hill last week. <laughs> wrote in about that. Oh yeah! No no. No the the um. What if that really? Ha- I mean, I would be talk about things that blow your mind. If you actually, you Chris Lackey, actually watched three seasons of One Tree Hill because you were confused. <laughs> And somehow you could convince me of that, that that actually happened. I think that would really screw me up. I would have a shadow for the rest of my life. <laughs> I'd be like, nothing, nothing is making sense in the world the way that I want it to anymore. Uh, so- yeah. No, the narrator actually later on is, they call he calls him Single. Yeah. Is that some kind of nickname for something? I don't know. Is it maybe Singleton? Maybe his last name is Singleton, but they never explain that in the story. Yeah. Just calls him Single. Maybe he's just rubbing it in. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Kicking a date. Yeah. Not unlike Lovecraft. <laughs> Dude, I've been reading A Life, and Lovecraft was not good with ladies. No? Just believe it. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, on this story that we're on on the tree on the hill yes, that we're sorry. talking about now. Now, Hampton, uh, this takes place up in Washington, I think. Idaho. Washington and Idaho. Yeah. The reason I know only the only reason I know that is because I, I was browsing around on hplovecraft.com, and I found this letter. It's posted by James Ambule uh, that was from Dwayne Rimmel, who's oh, okay. the collaborator on this story. Yep talking about the experience of you know how, how this came about and he wrote uh, it's called a history of the chronicle of nath and the chronicle of nath is a book that comes up in this story yeah. by the way i actually liked i actually kind of enjoyed this story did you i don't think no. you liked it too much no i didn't well this is what Dwayne wrote about his experience around 1934 when i was corresponding with hp lovecraft i wrote a little tale called the forbidden room this later appeared in fanciful tales in 1935 i did another story called the tree on the hill using the same general background it was my own arkham transferred west, my hometown of Asseton, Washington, which I called Hampton. Downriver several miles on the Snake was Croydon, Idaho, or in reality, Lewiston, Idaho. So he was on the border of Washington, Idaho. Right. Um, In my youthful enthusiasm to try and impress HPL, I sent him the tree on the hill. The locale was Hampton. HPL returned my story completely rewritten 
That's how he wrote it back. <laughs> Somehow the idea of a lone tree on a hill touched his tremendous imagination. I was flattered and astonished, of course, and retyped it. To give the story depth and meaning, Lovecraft invented the Chronicle of Nath. Its author was Rudolf Jurgler, a German mystic and alchemist who borrowed some of his lore from Hermes Trismegistus, which we yeah. always have problems yeah. saying on the show, the ancient Egyptian sorcerer. HPL also invented a lengthy quote from this tome of elder lore. The tree never achieved professional publication. In later years, Otis Klein, my agent, did show it around without success. It sank into obscurity. Around 1939, I gave it to Paul Freehofer, who was publishing a small fancy called Polaris. It appeared there in 1940. Mm -hmm. Shortly after that, I did a story for The Acolyte, Music of the Stars, which I helped publish. In the tale, I used the Chronicle of Nath and elaborated on it. So this all became the mythos that Dwayne was, was sort of right. writing about, his, his kind of thing. Uh, later, it was under lock and key at Croydon University. Hampton has mentioned in my second Weird Tales appearance in the Metal Chamber. This made me feel sad. I had planned, of course, to have the Chronicles become as famous as those works of evil conceived by HPL, Robert Block, and August Erleth. It was not to be. In the early 40s, I turned from the weird to detective and murder mysteries. Frankly, I needed the money. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he concludes with something that actually might change what we, whether we cover this or not. Uh, I don't know. I mean, he's saying it, so I guess it's true. He wrote, incidentally, my first story in Weird Tales, The Disinterment, was not, and I repeat, not ghosted by HPL, as certain would-be, quote, critics and, quote, editors would like to believe. This fraud was perpetrated upon me behind my back, so to speak. HPL did indeed see the tale and congratulate me upon it. He made a few suggestions. He said it was ready for professional submission, and Otis Klein did indeed sell it. Any other interpretations by self-appointed HPL researchers are false. I was there. I know who wrote the story. Whoa. But I like how he says any other interpretations by self-appointed HPL researchers, and HPL researchers is in quotes. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's our job description. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> asked us to. I mean, we yeah. are self-appointed. Nobody asked <laughs> us to sure do this. We sure are. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if he really wrote it himself, then we shouldn't cover it. Well, according to a letter that H.P. Lovecraft wrote, he mm -hmm. says that he did make some suggestions on the words, and yeah. and he did incorporate those into that story. So, I don't well, know who it seems who like both accounts jive. I mean, so he made some suggestions. Yeah, shouldn't really be taking credit for it. I don't know. Eh, he's not taking credit for it, but I mean, if we're if we're covering things that H.P. Lovecraft has sort of been involved in, then okay. I think that well, we should definitely keep it in. All right, we'll keep it in. We'll just make sure that we let people know. Yeah, exactly. Um, and actually, on this story, The Tree on the Hill, which we should probably talk about, All right. I think most of it is written by Rimmel. I mean, yeah. I, from what I heard, it's only really the third chapter that's, that's really yes. Lovecraft's. Yeah. But let's get through it pretty quickly. So so we have that intro. Uh, our guy goes out for a walk, and he's he's just like Lovecraft, where he's out walking for miles and miles and miles, just mm -hmm. taking things in. And his buddy is, is at home studying Egyptians. He suddenly comes to this kind of blighted area out in the hills, yeah. which uh, there's no vegetation, there's no insects, there's no animals. It's just yeah. like black soil. Very strange. Yeah. And he's walking across that for a while, kind of trying to puzzle out what's going on when he comes across this tree. Yeah. Something like an oak, more mm -hmm. than anything. Huge, twisted trunk, fully a yard in diameter. So it's huge, right? And his large limbs are spreading outward, uh, scarcely seven feet uh, from the ground. Yeah. And it has strange round leaves on it. He looks at his watch. He says, okay, it's about 10 o'clock in the morning. He looks out to the east, and suddenly he sees the uh, Bitterroot Mountains, which yeah. there's no way he should have been able to see. No. 300 miles away. Uh, yeah. And also, at the altitude, he shouldn't even be able to see them. No. So that's strange. That's strange. It's so strange, it makes him drowsy. I don't yeah. understand. But, and, and underneath this tree, there is grass growing. Which is strange right, because exactly. there's grass growing nowhere else. Yeah, now. rank grass beneath a tree. 
But he decides to sleep on it. Yeah. <laughs> well, looking at looking at the insane marvel of seeing those mountains makes him drowsy, and so he uh, takes a nap. Then a curious phenomenon began to assail me. A vague, cloudy sort of vision, glimpsing or daydreaming seemingly without relevance to anything familiar. I thought I saw a great temple by a sea of ooze, where three suns gleamed in a pale red sky. The vast tomb or temple was an anomalous color, a nameless blue-violet shade. Large beasts flew in the cloudy sky, and I seemed to hear the pounding of their scaly wings. I went nearer the stone temple, and a huge doorway loomed in front of me. Within that portal were swirling shadows that seemed to dart and leer and try to snatch me inside that awful darkness. I thought I saw three flaming eyes in the shifting void of a doorway, and I screamed with mortal fear. In that noisome depth, I knew lurked utter destruction, a living hell even worse than death. I screamed again, the vision faded. You know, that made me think of um, The Elder Things and Dreams in the Witch House, when the rat and the witch and the narrator go out and uh, I think the world they go to has three suns, doesn't it? Oh, shoot. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, because he gets kind of sunburned from uh, being out with all the suns. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's... Imp- and also the three... Uh, thought he saw three flaming eyes. Kind of reminded me of Haunted, Haunted of the Dark with the three-lobed burning eye. Uh, which we haven't gotten to yet. We haven't gotten to that yet, but um, something that comes up a lot. Anyway, both of the, I don't know if they're connected. Maybe he visited the same place that Kaziah Mason had visited. I'm not... Could be. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, he sees the mountains and he figures, hey, I'm going to take some pictures of this and of the tree and show my buddy uh, Thenius. Yeah, his buddy's got a crazy name, right? Constantine Theunis. Theunis, that's how you pronounce it? Constantine's a pretty great name, so let's stick with that. He tells his buddy, he's like, I'm going to show photos to Constantine of this because it's so odd. So he takes a couple yeah. of pictures and then he sits back down on the grass. For some reason, he's kind of drawn to it, looks up at the trees. And then suddenly he's back again. He can see the pale sky and the three yep. suns and the... He calls it the land of three shadows. He sees that temple that freaked him out and the vast doorway yawning before him, and, and he's just kind of sucked in within it. Finally, he wakes up. He freaks out, and then when he wakes up, he's not beneath the tree. He's way at the edge of the blighted area. Yeah, his clothes are ripped. He's all dirty, and he doesn't know what happened, and yeah, uh, it's late afternoon. Right, and it's, even the knees of his trousers were torn out, which means he probably crawled part of the way. Pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah, while he was asleep, he did this. <laughs> right. And so that gets us into chapter two, where he goes back to Constantine, who says, hey, of course I want to see those pictures. Show them to me. So he pulls them out, and the first <laughs> thing that Constantine does is say, my God, man, look at this. And you think he's going to be freaked out by the tree, but it's not that. It's that there are three shadows. Three shadows on everything. Three for every rock, for every bush, for every tree. Which means that there were three suns in the sky. So you weren't liking this at all. You just didn't care? No, didn't care. I'm like, so he sees a tree, sees this trippy place. Uh, yeah. It's... I, why do I care about him? It's not interesting. I feel I feel like we've seen this kind of stuff already with Lovecraft. Yeah, sure, we have. Plus, here's the, the very quick, well, hold on. I'm going to run in the other room and get a book that I just happen to have that's going to explain exactly what's going on. So he does, <laughs> Constantine does. He comes back out with this Chronicle of Nath yep. written by Rudolf Jurgler that I talked about a second ago. And uh, he says, there's a passage here that might interest you. And uh, he reads it. So in the year of the black goat, there came unto Nath a shadow that could not be on earth. And that had no form known to the eyes of earth. And it fed on the souls of men. 
They that it gnawed being lured and blinded with dreams till the horror and the endless night lay upon them. Nor did they see that which gnawed them, for the shadow took false shapes that men know or dream of, and only freedom seemed waiting in the land of the three sons. But it was told by priests of the old book that he who could see the shadow's true shape and live after the seeing might shun its doom and send it back to the starless gulf of its spawning. This none could do save through the gem, wherefore did Ka-Nefer, the high priest, keep that gem sacred in the temple. And when it was lost with Frenes, he who braved the horror and was never seen more, there was weeping in Nath. Yet did the shadow depart sated at last, nor shall it hunger again till the cycles roll back to the year of the black goat. So that's the... um Van Helsing paragraph. You know, if you, the way to defeat whatever's going on out there, I don't even know why you want to defeat it. But if you want to, you got to have this gem, and whoever sees what the true thing is, then it'll run away because it's scared because you saw it naked or whatever. Yeah. He says, well, fortunately, that old gem that's in that mentioned in the book here. Yeah, I, I know where it is. Yeah, it's been rediscovered. I know exactly where it's at. It, it's in it's in Washington. It's in yeah. But this is what's kind of annoys me about this story is then Constantine goes off and does everything. Right. So that gets us into the third chapter, which is the Lovecraft chapter. So the narrator says, I, I don't need to get into too many details about what happened with me, but my buddy went and did some some crazy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he's really vague about what happens. He just said, oh, he went and got yeah. the gem. He doesn't know exactly what happened, but he gets a call that the guy is in the hospital. Come out here. I need to talk to you. So he goes to the hospital. What does he learn? I saw it. I did it. I got the gem. Everything's taken care of. It's it's going to be gone. The, the, the shadow, the monster, the creature, whatever. You won't have to worry about it for a few thousand years. But I need you to go get all your pictures and destroy them and burn them. Because I'm having some kind of crazy fit and I couldn't have done that. So I'm here. You go home and take care of him. Why didn't he just wait, by the way, not call him from the hospital? And when he got discharged, go home, destroy everything, and then call him to tell him. Yeah. Anyway, he says, you got to do this for me because it's the way to get the narrator back into the story. Should have just had the narrator do this, but whatever. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you agree, right? I mean, I totally agree. Yeah. It just seemed ridiculous to me that all of the action, him going to fight the monster and do all the cool stuff, it, yeah. it skipped. It's totally skipped. Well, it does drive him to go back and collect the stuff and start burning it and give us a kind of Pikmin's model kind of ending. Here's what happened. He created a kind of camera obscura, which is basically a black box that you put a pinhole of light through. Right. I'm sure most people are familiar with that. And he, t- he took the gem and put it in there so that he could look through the gem at the photos. He had slid the photos into the back of it so that he could look at them. And when he did this, he had done some drawings of what he was seeing. Now, our narrator, when he gets there, does exactly as he was asked to do. He takes the gem out of the camera obscura, he takes the photos out, but for a moment he looks at the drawing that Constantine had done of what he saw when he used the gem to look at the photo. That was very confusing to me. I didn't really understand that. Right. Well, it's that, once again, it's that the thing... See, this is the problem. The thi- the thing, And this is probably why Lovecraft did this switcheroo here, because he wanted to impress upon you that what you would see by looking at the photos through the gem was so crazy and horrific. The better way to take it in without losing your mind would be to see an illustration of it. Right. You know, a couple removed. But of course, that makes our narrator faint. So <laughs> it's still pretty potent and illustrated mm-hmm. form. You know, it was in a burst of fever of perverse boldness that he looked at the... Uh... <laughs> perverse boldness. In the last paragraph... Uh, it recounts what he beheld in the sketch. It says, Where I had, in the landscape itself, seen the twisted half-sentient tree, there was here visible only a gnarled, terrible hand, or talon with fingers, or feelers, 
shockingly distended and evidently groping towards something on the ground or in the spectator's direction. And squarely, below the writhing, bloated digits, I thought I saw an outline in the grass where a man had lain. But the sketch was hasty, and I could not be sure. So basically, the reality of the tree was that it was a giant hand claw, yeah, Yeah. reaching for him. And when he got up to take the photo, it was like, oh, you know, (laughs) didn't get him. But then when he lay down again, I think it did get him. And that's the reason that he went and was walking and all this kind of stuff. Because the hand actually would pull you into that world with the three sons, I guess, is what I imagine. I guess, yeah. But at this point, I, I, beats me. I, I had so much trouble reading. One, I didn't care at any point and, and found most of this completely uninteresting. It just feels like so much stuff that we've already read of Lovecraft. It's really derivative, yeah. yeah. But I did think that the writing was really nice in the first couple of chapters. I mean, it's funny because in the third chapter, it suddenly becomes full of things like in a burst of perverse boldness or, you know, yeah. one of the dark and forbidden design. It starts getting a lot wordier, but the first two chapters, which I think the kid wrote, are uh, pretty sharp. It's, not, it's good writing, but... A style over substance. Sure. One of the things, too, that he doesn't mention, he ended up doing some uh, pornography as well. What? Some softcore pornography. Yeah, he probably, he did a lot of that to make money. Hey, man. Every, everybody's got to make a few bucks from pornography. I've done it before, you know. What? I wrote, I've published some erotica before. Really? You know that. I know this, but the audience doesn't know this. <laughs> okay. Years ago, when I was looking through the writer's market, mm-hmm. I was in my 20s, and, and I, I was trying to write short stories and get them published, as a lot of people are doing. And back then, you know, you had the big tome, the writer's market, mm-hmm. which is online now. I mean, you can still buy it. But it was it's listings for all the different journals and publications that you can submit to. But most of them, it's credit and copy and mm-hmm. circulation of a 1,000 or something like that. And it would be astounding to me that I'd look at one listing, and that's all it was. And then I'd look at Genesis or Swank or, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> one of these porn magazines, and they'd pay $350 for a wow. story. And wow. I, I was like, wow. How hard can this be? Certainly, I've read plenty of these. You know, as far as I can tell, it's just it's coming up with lots of different adjectives. You know, for uh-huh. the same sex act that people have been perpetrating for millennia. So, yep. <laughs> so I sat down. I took a half hour. Half hour. I knocked one out, and then I wrote the story. <laughs> and then I wrote the story. <laughs> yeah, I sent it off to a few places and forgot about it. And then I, I got. I actually published it in two different places. And I made a little bit of money off. So I couldn't blame anybody for doing that. As no, well. of course not. Now I'm not going to tell anybody where or what that is. Oh, curses. Okay, did you, you you didn't use your real name? I didn't use my real name, no. How, what no. was the first name that you used? The first name I used was Trevor Champagne. <laughs> <laughs> it's just true. Which is remember when we talked about Trevor Towers in the uh, uh-huh. on the show? It was reminding me of my old student name. But then I thought, boy, that really sounds <laughs> overboard. <laughs> so I at the time I was um, writing online quite a bit too, and I worked for a site where I had to write articles. Um, and make it sound like it was several different people. So I had a few pseudonyms, and one of them was Mark Richardson, which I've written under a lot. And I decided to just use that because I want somebody to uncover at some point that Mark Richardson also wrote porn, in addition to medical content. Which <laughs> what he was. Mark, Mark Richardson was a special in medicine, and that was his uh, medical profession. Kind of stuff. And he loved writing erotica. In erotica as well. <laughs> well, there's no, there's no shame in writing erotica. In fact, That's what uh, I'm saying, yeah. I've enjoyed plenty of it over the years. Sure, sure. Who has well, I haven't read it, so I shouldn't say this, but there is like Lovecraftian erotica, right? There's like Cthulhu. Oh God, yeah, erotic, there's tons of it. Uh, I, that I don't. I'm not. I'm not a tentacle man, so 
You're not a tentacle man? What do you mean? Oh, I know. It doesn't do mean. that yeah. for me, you know. Lovecraftian erotica, there's a whole huge genre of that type of thing, and it's just never right. appealed to me. No, but I but I shouldn't say I don't like it because I haven't really tried it. Oh, I've, tr- cool. I've checked some out. I've Well, some, but I mean, it's just that yeah. it, it, horror and sex aren't things that I go together for me. I'm pretty pretty vanilla. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I hear vanilla, you. Yeah. I think they go together, but when you say erotica to me, that means I'm going to be... Um, Masturbating to it. Well, that's not what I was going to say, but that's a pretty... <laughs> I, <laughs> turned on by it or I'm going to find it erotic. But when if, whenever it's... Because I think like a lot of horror the fear of sex plays into horror. It plays into a lot of Lovecraft's horror. I think the guy was terrified of sex to an extent. There's a lot of, I think you can find that in there. We've talked about it a little yeah, bit here. Yeah. So, I mean, I think sex goes along thematically with horror, but it's not, I'm not going to get turned on by exactly. it. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's the bad parts of sex that you're really talking about. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think, you know? but I feel like the Lovecraft erotica that at least the ones that I have seen or the, the mm-hmm. stuff that seems to be popular, it's, it's more sexy than it is. It is horrifying, yeah, or supposed to be yeah. sexy. I find it horrifying, but I, I, I feel like <laughs> that's my take on it. I could be wrong, and if yeah, I don't want to make anybody mad because I know that there's a lot of people who, who work in that milieu, oh, and there's clearly an audience for it. Absolutely, it's just not my thing. That's all. Yeah, yeah. If it's well, for me, I'm really into Alf erotica. Sure, Alf, I can totally understand that because he's from Melmac. Yeah, right, and that's sexy. And eating cats is kind of sexy. That's sexy. Yeah. Not sure. the actual well, act of it, but knowing that he eats cats, totally sexy. We got to stop talking about it. I'm getting turned <laughs> on. <laughs> oh, God. Well, we kind of discussed the stories today, Chris. Yes. <laughs> we did. As well as a, a few other things, but oh, well. Guess what? Next week, we're going to be into a big one. Finally. The Shadow Out of Time. Yeah, The Shadow Out of Time. And so we are not going to have you know as much time to fool around like we did today. So yeah. <laughs> we'll have to get into it. I think that'll probably be a two-parter at least, right? At least, yeah. That's a, But that's a great story. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking about it. I really, really enjoy it. Um, I'm, I'm going to admit something to you. I've never read it. You've never read it? I've never read The Shadow oh, Out of Time. Well, you're in for a treat. Good. This is really cool. It's a cool story. It's really cool. Also, don't forget we're doing our ransom for the yes. reading of The Hound and The Temple. That's right. So please contribute if you can. It helps us keep the show afloat. And you're also going to get some dynamite readings from Anthony Tedesco and Andrew Lehman. And also, just to um, pat ourselves on the back again, yay, Deadbeats. It's coming yay. out uh, this fall. Thanks to INJ Colbard for jumping on board with us and shepherding us through the process. Yeah. Thanks to Self Made Hero for taking a chance on us. And, and we hope that you'll all buy it and read it so that we get to make more of this stuff. But we'll bug you about it more. That's all we have for this week. Uh, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com.